Liberty, equality, and fraternity. The saying that would launch numerous revolutions around the world and has stayed in the minds of philosophers ever since. The next epoch of socialist history, one defined by the English, American, French, and Haitian revolutions, which set the stage for the towering icons of the 19th century who created the modern socialist theories we still have today. This period was defined by the rise of capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, and slavery. First, let's briefly describe the rise of capitalism. This economic system grew from feudalism in the 16th century and resulted from societal shifts as we went from using markets periodically to producing for the market as the all-consuming task. There was a move from peasant proprietor production to a tenant system. It created a market for land leases where the farmer or worker could keep all surplus after rent instead of giving it to the local landlord like in the feudal system. These tenant farmers would in turn hire landless peasants and others as wage laborers. As more English land came under this system, forcing the majority of landless peasants to accept wage labor, the state enacted enclosure acts to privatize communal land for farming and hunting. Plus added the 1744 Vagrancy Act, which severely punished those, quote, who refused to work for the usual and common wages. Karl Marx would argue that this was the first time society became subordinate to markets through economic coercion and not political coercion. The first, quote, market society was born. Other countries would copy these policies and systems. Britain's population would explode during this time and with technological innovations would lead to the Industrial Revolution to soon follow in the 19th century. The capitalists would create massive factories and forces of industry, chaining the new wage labor force to 12-hour work shifts producing 10 million tons of coal in Britain alone. This massive labor force, many women and children as well, would become the oppressed and exploited proletariat class that would be the central focus of all modern socialist and Marxist theory. The philosophers and economists along the way of this societal shift would also evolve political theory in ways that would supremely shape our modern world. They would inspire massive revolutions that would forever change the landscape of global politics. The founder of utopian socialism, Thomas More, the infamous Lord Chancellor of England under King Henry VIII, would write a satirical essay called Utopia in 1516. It's framed in two books, the first being a description of the ills of European society, and the second being a description of a fictional island in the New World called Utopia, the former describing the warlike nature of European monarchs, frivolous spending, inhumane capital punishment, and the enclosure acts leading to poverty theft within the peasant class, the latter describing a land of indigenous people with representative constitutional monarchy where the monarch was elected by tribal elders who in turn were elected themselves. The land was redistributed to people equally, elimination of private property, free health care, and sexual freedom to the clergy. Thomas More's personal religious and political beliefs, at least from the classical historical perspective, seem to be in contradiction to his magnum opus here. So there's still debate about the interpretation of this work. However, it can't be denied that the utopian socialism that would dominate socialist theory in the early 19th century can be traced to Moore's utopia. Over the next hundred years, England will go through massive changes, sporadic civil unrest, continental-sized wars, civil war, or revolution, from a new Stuart dynasty completely failing, poverty increasing drastically due to the growing issue of the enclosure of the commons, and massive religious unrest between the Puritans 
and Anglicans. Brent was at a crossroads. The two major sides were the Royalists and the Parliamentarians. As Christopher Hill, the famed British Marxist historian of the 20th century wrote, the Civil War was a class war in which the despotism of Charles I was defended by the reactionary forces of the established church and conservative landlords. And on the other side stood the trading and industrial classes of towns and the countryside and the yeomen and progressive gentry and wider masses of the population whenever they were able by free discussion to understand what the struggle was really about. During the English Civil War or English Revolution, many different radical groups formed and tried to expand political and economic power to the people. The most radical of these new groups were become known as the Diggers. They were Protestant radicals who separated from another radical group called the Levelers. They didn't believe in private ownership of land, so they farmed and lived in communal villages. They would go and destroy the enclosures made by the aristocratic class. Forming multiple colonies within England, the radical levelers and diggers, though, would be undermined by the parliamentarian leader, Oliver Cromwell. He consolidated power after the king's execution. He stamped out civil liberties in Ireland and Scotland for the profits of English capitalists. Cromwell created a quasi-military dictatorship and dissolved the new English parliament which would lead to the English monarchy gaining power again in the Great Restoration as it's called. The failures of the radical proto-anarchist diggers or the more proto-socialist levelers were a sign of how future radical revolutions could easily be defeated by center-left forces who adhered to the newly created industrial class. The failure of the Cromwell-led parliament to both Cromwell's own authoritarianism and eventually the restoration of the British monarchy showed how easily radical revolutions can be co-opted by reactionary authoritative forces, leading to a significant increase in oppression to the masses in the proletarian class. As the 17th century gave way to the height of the age of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, a new wave of revolutionaries developed. Spearheaded by the iconic Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the Genevan philosopher would write foundational works that would spur on this new wave. The Discourse on Inequality and the Social Contract, written in 1755 and 1762, respectively, would inspire the revolutions of America and France, plus be the basis for all future political philosophy. He heavily criticized the idea of private property and pushed for a centralized constitutional republic. He saw that people had sovereignty over the government, and direct democracy in an assembly was ideal and more important than claims of natural right. He saw the general will of the people as the supreme authority. So any concepts of governance, be it taxation, war, etc., were under the control of an assembly which was controlled by the direct will of the people. This social contract between the sovereignty of the people and the government was a far larger demand than the weak constitutional monarchies that existed or the bourgeoisie republics that would form in Europe after Rousseau. At this point, the rise of capitalism is all but complete. European nations are rapidly becoming market societies, and Adam Smith, a hero of classical economics, would be the first to greatly detail capitalism in his magnum opus, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, or more shortly, the wealth of nations. His descriptions of the systems of capitalism were unmatched at the time. He is commonly a hero or icon to the modern ideals of free market society and limited government. Economist Herbert Stein pushes back on the modern, conservative, laissez-faire interpretation of Smith's work. He argued that the Wealth of Nations justified the modern U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Consumer Product Safety Commission, mandatory employer health benefits, environmentalism, and taxation to deter wealth inequality. Adam Smith stated himself, 
quote, the subjects of every state ought to contribute towards the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities. That is, in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. He also would heavily criticize the landlord class for their economic and political privileges. Renowned modern intellectual Noam Chomsky encapsulated the, quote, invisible hand of Adam Smith's philosophy perfectly. Quote, let's take Adam Smith, the patron saint of capitalism. What did he think? He thought the main human instinct was sympathy. In fact, take a look at the word invisible hand. Take a look at the actual way in which he used the phrase. Actually, it's not hard to find out because he only used it twice in a relevant sense, once in each of his two major books. In his one major book, The Wealth of Nations, the phrase appears just once and it appears in what amounts to a critique of neoliberal globalization. What he says is that if in England, the manufacturers and merchants invested abroad and imported from abroad, they might benefit, but it would be harmful to England. But their commitment to the home country is sufficient, so they are unlikely to do this. And therefore, by an invisible hand, England will be saved from the impact of what we call neoliberal globalization. That's one use. The other use is in his other major book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which people don't read much, but for him, it was a major book. Here, he's an egalitarian. He believed in equality of outcome, not opportunity. He's an enlightenment figure, pre-capitalist. He says, suppose in England, one landowner got most of the land and other people would have nothing to live on. He says it wouldn't matter much because the rich landowner, by virtue of his sympathy for other people, would distribute resources among them, so that by the invisible hand, we would end up in a pretty egalitarian society. That's his conception of human nature. That's not the way, quote, invisible hand is used by the people who you took courses with or whose books you read. That shows a difference in doctrine, not in fact about human nature. What we actually know about human nature is that it has all of these possibilities. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith was published in 1776 the same year as the official start of the American Revolution. It was also the same year that Thomas Paine would publish Common Sense and push the age of revolutions forward for the next few decades. Thomas Paine was born in England in 1737, and his early years were, as historian Eric Foner put it, quote, a period of unrelenting failure, end quote. He ran away from home at the age of 16, couldn't hold a job, went through two marriages, it wasn't until the 1770s in England that Paine would turn towards Enlightenment-era thinking. It was in the taverns with religious and political dissenters that Paine would meet Benjamin Franklin, who was looking for fellow radicals to support their growing movement in the British colonies in America. Franklin would push for Paine to immigrate to Philadelphia in 1774. He would quickly find his place in this revolutionary atmosphere and start to write for the Pennsylvania Magazine under several pseudonyms. He would attack Britain for, quote, ravaging the hapless shores of Africa, robbing it of its unoffending inhabitants to cultivate her stolen domains in the West. He would argue for the ending of the slave trade and the freedom of slaves. He would formulate social welfare programs that could provide young married couples with, quote, a reasonable sufficiency to begin the world with, end quote, and a program similar to our modern social security system to protect elderly people from destitution. As the American colonies were quickly militarizing for an armed revolution from Britain, fellow revolutionary Benjamin Rush would suggest to Paine to write a pamphlet for support of independence and a republican government. Common Sense would sell 150,000 copies that year in the colonies, 
And by the way, Payne never took a dime from that. All proceeds went towards the revolution. And it would be the spark that obviously ignited the American imagination about a just republic. Historian Harvey J.K. detailed how John and Abigail Adams wrote to each other when Common Sense was first published about a wave of revolutionary fervor amongst the young college students, slaves, and women, all of which deeply concerned the founding father John Adams especially because his wife was one of those swayed by Payne's work. Late in 1776, Payne would write the American crisis to inspire the troops as the war started. It began with the famous line, these are the times that try men's souls. Penn would act as the secretary of the Congressional Committee of Foreign Affairs until he denounced Silas Dean and Robert Morris for trying to profit off the revolution. This would lead to his expulsion from the Congressional Committee in 1779. The work as General Nathaniel Green's aide-de-camp for the next few years. In 1780, he would publish his next work, The Public Good, where he called for the land west of the 13 colonies to be for the government and the people, when people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Richard Henry Lee, the ancestor to Robert E. Lee, and others wanted the land to be owned by the Virginia Company, a company they respectively had ownership in, of course. Payne would leave for Paris in 1781 to successfully seek funding for the revolution and to get away from the animosity of the growing political establishment. The revolution ended just a couple years later in 1783. Payne would go on to help overturn the State Assembly of Pennsylvania from exclusively landowning white males to, quote, a one-body assembly with universal manhood suffrage, says historian Harvey K. Payne was in conflict with the Federalists even though he was in favor of a stronger federal government. John Adams and the Federalists feared the tyranny of the majority, or as Karl Marx would put it nearly a century later, the dictatorship of the proletariats. Payne feared the tyranny of the minority more, which is why he had a vision of popular sovereignty. That was the solution to governance issues. He viewed institutional checks on the sovereignty of the people as a threat to liberty. Payne became disinterested in the formation of the bourgeois liberal government in the United States and decided to focus on public works and inventions. So Benjamin Franklin asked Payne in 1787 to gather funds in Europe for a bridge he wanted to build in Philadelphia. Payne would travel to London first to look for funding in the heart of the Industrial Revolution that was going to change the world forever. Payne would travel to Paris as well, and while traveling back and forth between London and Paris, he saw the rise of the French and Haitian revolutions. Over a decade prior in 1774, Louis XVI was crowned King of France and inherited a country with significant financial crises, rising inequality, the aftermath of the World War and the Seven Years' War, and the revolutionary fervor of America slowly filtering into French culture along with Enlightenment-era philosophy. France also was an extremely unequal country, where the clergy and aristocrats, representing just 1.6% of the population, had complete political and economic control through hereditary power. Socialist Jean Girard described the economic subjection, there was not one action in rural life that did not require the peasants to pay a ransom. The feudal rights thus extended their clutches over every force of nature, everything that grew, moved, breathed, even over the fire burning in the oven to bake the peasants' poor bread. The urban population of laborers and artisans also experienced economic and political subjugation. The apprenticeship system was all but dismantled by the state, and day laborers had had day permits to exist in the cities they work in. The rural police would use this to harass the working class, arrest them, and send them to beggar colonies. In 1787, King Louis XVI called the Assembly of Notables for the first time in over a century. It was a council of high-ranking aristocrats to help deal with the economic crisis. Any proposals to remove the aggressive taxes on the poor, create taxes for the aristocracy or clergy, 
were denied. The harvest of 1788 was destroyed by droughts and storms, and the economic situation for the king became desperate. It allowed for the summoning of the Estates General in May 1789, a sign of the monarchy being an extremely weakened state. And the Estate General was comprised of three estates of groups, nobility, clergy, and the rest of France. The last time it was convened was 1614, however it was quickly apparent radical reform would not happen from this model. So the third estate, the majority of the French people, formed the National Assembly. Its purpose was to write the French Constitution. King Louis had to bow down to the pressures of the National Assembly, which renamed itself the National Constituent Assembly on July 9th, 1789. Jacques Necker, the finance minister, who was partially sympathetic to the third estate, was banished by the king on July 11th. The next day, the news hit the streets of Paris. The people feared a conservative backlash towards the assembly next, and took to the streets. Mass protests and riots broke out seemingly overnight all over the country. Conflict broke out between the military under King Louis and the poorly armed masses. The people would eventually raid repin and food depots, leading to a couple of days of combat in the streets of Paris. All of this leading to the famed storming of the Bastille on July 14, 1789, the ceremonial start of the French Revolution. In just the next few months, the feudal system would be utterly destroyed. The Declaration of the Rights of Man was written by Abbe Sayez, Marquis de Lafayette, and Thomas Jefferson, surprisingly. And the Women's March would change the capital of France from Versailles to Paris. The feudal system that had controlled France for hundreds of years would be stripped away and abolished. The laws and courts were all abolished. It's impossible not to understate the societal shift happening here. While the economic and political power of the 13 colonies stayed largely intact after the American Revolution, the economic and political order in France was being completely rewritten. The Declaration of the Rights of Man would state, Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. The goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and imperceptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. At 17 articles detailing the rights of citizens and the limitations of government, the U.S. Bill of Rights, which was written the same year, would only have 10 amendments. Criticism on the ambiguity of women's rights and the abolition of slavery divided right-wing revolutionaries and more radical groups. The aforementioned Women's March and the writing of the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen by Olympia de Gauge would decry the failure of the revolution when it came to women's rights. As the revolution was completely changed in the social and political and economic paradigm of France, civil factions started to take shape. In the assembly, the right wing was led by Jacques-Antoine-Marie de Cazier, who opposed the revolution. The Munachians, or royalists, led by Jacques Necker, wanted a constitutional monarchy similar to Britain. The Jacobins split into two groups, and then the people's movement separate from the assembly was the Sonculottes. The Sonculottes were a radical, lower-class, decentralized group that took direct action in the streets comparative to the bourgeois assembly. A growing cultural group more than an organized political group like the Jacobins, they wanted to establish local direct democracy, which would ensure the consistent price for necessities. They were the most radical in their politics comparative to even the classical radicals, the Jacobins. The Jacobin Club was a relatively small group of Enlightenment-era nobles and middle-class bourgeois philosophers. It grew out of the States General in 1789 in secret meetings, the two figures that would dominate this new political group were the Count de Maribou and the infamous Maximilien Robespierre. 
They represented two sides of the Jacobins, the Girardins and the Montagnards. The French constitution was written in 1791 by the assembly, the majority of which wanted a constitutional monarchy and a new legislative assembly to replace the national assembly. The king still had veto power and could appoint ministers. Over the course of the next year in 1792, France's new constitutional monarchy would utterly fail under its own bourgeois ineptitude in wars with Austria and Prussia. The king would ultimately try to use foreign powers to reverse the effects of the revolution, leading to the sans-culottes to gather a group of 20,000 Parisians, armed with mainly pikes, to march on the king's Tuileries palace. They would kill the Swiss guards and capture King Louis XVI. The sans-culottes would go into the prisons and kill up to 1,500 prisoners, mainly Catholic priests and nobles believed to be conspiring with the royalists. This would be the moment where the revolution rejected the royalists and even moderates in favor of the radical ring of the Jacobins led by Robespierre. A national convention was called where the centrist Girardins lost ground to the center-left Montagnards. The monarchy was abolished and a republic was declared. The reaction of the outside world of this growing revolution in France was best contrasted between Irish conservative statesman Edmund Burke and British American revolutionary Thomas Paine. In 1790, Burke would publish Reflections on the Revolution in France, denouncing the revolution as a destructive force and defended the monarchy there. He perceived the revolution as tearing the fabric of society. Burke, who was devoutly religious, also vehemently defended the power of the church over society. Burke predicted through the chaos of the revolution a popular general would take power, one of the few predictions he got right. Thomas Paine was fascinated with the French Revolution, and like Jefferson, felt a revolutionary kinship with the movement. He would write The Rights of Man in two parts in reaction to Burke, and also be involved with the National Assembly. Combining his work Grand Justice in 1795, Paine would lay out the blueprint for the modern social democratic philosophy we see in FDR and Bernie Sanders 100-200 years later. He would lay out programs for land and wealth redistribution, a universal one-time capital grant for both men and women when they reach the age of maturity, similar to a universal basic income except it's not annual, just a one-time capital grant. He also was the creator of the U.S. Social Security program well over a century before it was actually implemented. He also had the notion that all people must pay a 10% tax on all personal and private property in a way to deal with the hoarding of wealth while giving an argument for ownership of the means of production half a century before Karl Marx. Thomas Paine stated, personal property is the effect of society, and it is as impossible for an individual to acquire personal property without the aid of society as it is for him to make land originally. Separate an individual from society and give him an island or a continent to possess, and he cannot acquire personal property. He cannot be rich. So inseparable are the means connected with the end in all cases that where the former do not exist, the latter cannot be obtained. All accumulation, therefore, of personal property, beyond what a man's own hands produce, is derived to him by living in society. And he owes on every principle of justice, of gratitude, and of civilization, a part of that accumulation back again to society from whence the whole came. If we examine the case minutely, it will be found that the accumulation of personal property is, in many instances, the effect of paying too little for the labor that produced it, the consequence of which is that the working hand perishes in old age 
and the employer abounds in affluence. This was revolutionary and again would be arguments that were echoed later on by Karl Marx and other well-known Marxist, communist, socialists and the like. Payne would lay the philosophical bedrock of the entire modern socialist movement with this understanding of the exploitation of labor and the pre-Keynesian welfare programs. Back in France in the aftermath of the Sanskrit imprisoning, the King and Queen, and the war declared between France, Prussia, and Austria, leading to the first in a constant continental wars that wouldn't stop until the fall of Napoleon in 1815. The newly appointed National Convention would give rise to the Committee of Public Safety, headed by Maximilien Robespierre. It would be Robespierre's speech in front of the National Convention that would lead to the execution of the former King and Queen. Louis was a king, and our republic is established. The critical question concerning you must be decided by these words alone. Louis was dethroned by his crimes. Louis denounced the French people as rebels. He appealed to chains, to the armies of tyrants who are his brothers. The victory of the people established that Louis alone was a rebel. Louis cannot, therefore, be judged. He already is judged. He is condemned or the Republic cannot be absolved. To propose to have a trial of King Louis in whatever manner one may is to retrogress to royal despotism and constitutionality. It is a counter-revolutionary idea because it places the revolution itself in litigation. In effect, if Louis may still be given a trial, he may be absolved and innocent. What am I to say? He is presumed to be so until he is judged but if Louis is absolved, he may be presumed innocent. What becomes of the revolution? If Louis is innocent, all the defenders of liberty become slanderers. Yes, the death penalty is, in general, crime, unjustifiable by the indestructible principles of nature, except in cases protecting the safety of individuals or the society altogether. Ordinary misdemeanors have never threatened public safety because society may always protect itself by other means making those culpable powerless to harm it. But for a king dethroned in the bosom of a revolution, which is as yet cemented only by laws, a king whose name attracts the scourge of war upon a troubled nation, neither prison nor exile can render his existence inconsequential to public happiness. This cruel exception to the ordinary laws avowed by justice can be imputed only to the nature of his crimes. With regret, I pronounce this fatal truth. Louis must die so that the nation may live. On January 17, 1793, King Louis would be executed by guillotine for, quote, conspiracy against the public liberty and the general safety. Former Queen Marie Antoinette would be executed some months later in October for bankrupting the national treasury, conspiracy with foreign and domestic enemies, and high treason for intelligence activities with foreign empires. Within this time and the next year would be the Reign of Terror, where Robespierre were to consolidate the power of the Committee of Public Safety and systematically eliminate all counter-revolutionary forces. Even the Girardin faction of the Jacobin Club were executed. Robespierre would consolidate even more power after the assassination of his friend and fellow Jacobin, Jean-Paul Marat. Public records of the time say that over 16,000 people were executed. Now what to make of this violent period, which is still debated in academia. The internal and external dangers to the revolution were real. 
There were known conspiracies to roll back the revolution by people within the Jacobin Club and other reactionary and right-wing groups within the revolution. The external danger of the European monarchies combining their respective strength to fight the Revolutionary Republic was legitimate. The French Republic was already in the middle of wars with Austria and Prussia, while the British and Spanish empires were actively engaged in proxy wars in the colonies to strip away the French Empire. The threat of restoration of the monarchy was always present throughout the already five years of the revolution. Also, when talking about the violence of the oppressed, it must be framed with the violence of the oppressors. The absolute monarchy of France and the feudal system of serfdom did exponentially more damage and caused more death than Robespierre. The millions that were dying in the Napoleonic Wars that followed Robespierre obviously did more damage and killed more people than Robespierre. The revolutionary wrote in 1794, If the spring of popular government in times of peace is virtue, the springs of popular government and revolution are at once virtue and terror. Virtue without which terror is fatal, terror without which virtue is powerless. Terror is nothing other than justice, prompt, severe, inflexible. It is therefore an emanation of virtue. It is not so much a special principle as it is a consequence of the general principle of democracy applied to our country's most urgent needs. It has been said that terror is the principle of despotic government. Does your government therefore resemble despotism? Yes, as the sword that gleams in the hand of the heroes of liberty resembles that which the henchmen of tyranny are armed. Let the despot govern by terror his brutalized subjects. He is right as a despot. Subdued by terror the enemies of liberty, and be right as founders of the republic. The government of the revolution is liberty's despotism against tyranny. Is force made only to protect crime? And is the thunderbolt not destined to strike the head of the proud? Indulgence for the royalists, cry certain men, mercy for the villains, no. Mercy for the innocent, mercy for the weak, mercy for the unfortunate, mercy for humanity. Karl Marx, just 50 years later, would write, There's only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth rows of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and be concentrated. And that way is revolutionary terror. Though, as writer Jonah Walter states, quote, One more thing seems nearly certain. Sending political opponents within the ranks of the revolutionaries to the guillotine, the Dantonist, the Herbatist, was a reflection of political weakness that left Robespierre isolated and ultimately defenseless against the plots he so feared. No matter the morality of the revolutionary violence, this specific period would make Robespierre and his faction of the Jacobins alone in this world, where the enemies of the revolution were gaining power and coalescing. On January 27, 1794, the right and center of what was left of the National Convention would conspire to overthrow the power of Robespierre and the Committee of Public Safety. Robespierre and most of his followers would be arrested and executed by the guillotine. The white terror, as it's called, would lead to the systemic executions of the radicals of the revolution. Proto-anarchist Gracchus Babeuf would try to restart the radical revolution with the conspiracy of equals, where he wanted direct democracy and the abolition of private property. He would be executed as well. All the radicals of the French Revolution would be stamped out during this period. A center-left bourgeois government called the French Directory would be formed from 1795 to 1799. By all accounts, it was a failure. And Napoleon Bonaparte would carry out a coup d'etat and replace it with the French consulate and eventually crown himself Emperor of France. 
In effect, the French Revolution was over, and the Napoleonic era began. This ultimately led to the Bourbon Restoration that instilled a constitutional monarchy. Nonetheless, many changes from the Revolution and Napoleon, societal, political, and economical changes, could not be reversed. Another revolution was happening concurrently with the French Revolution, and even was more successful. The Haitian Revolution from 1791 to 1804. The Haitian Revolution, or the San Domingo Revolution, as it's traditionally called, was a massive shift in human civilization. To understand the significance of this period of history, we must detail the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. It was a market that was created to support the global capitalist system that was being made across Western empires. How would capitalists extrapolate surplus wealth from the resource-rich New World and the Global South? create a slave labor class that was subordinate to even the white working class of Europe. Over 12 million slaves were thought to have lived through the process to actually get to the New World. Millions and millions more would die before ever reaching the European colonies. The number on how many actually died is unknown to history. Before the slave trade truly started, Central Africa was a relatively peaceful tribal area. Details of European travelers going thousands of miles without intervention or conflict was common and the norm. The Portuguese were the first to try to break up this peaceful tribal system, raging war on tribes if they didn't sell slaves. European powers would kill chieftains and destroy all societal order in Africa by rape and pillage. Slave revolts in Africa in the ports along the hundreds of miles of those economic trails were quite common. Those that survived the forced marches and the ports were subject to the slave ships, where 20% of slaves were killed or died. Ship captains, if held up by storms, would often poison or kill the slaves on board to ration food for themselves. It was also not rare for ship captains to force cannibalism on the slaves. They were tortured and mutilate a slave in front of everyone and then force the rest to eat the corpse, unless they also won the same horrific evil fate. Then when they reached the harbors of the new world, the women were subject to molestation and rape while the men were branded. A priest would then instruct them through an interpreter on the teachings of Christianity. The colony of San Domingo was the epitome of the horrors of this capitalist system. The island was colonized in the late 15th century, and the native population went from near a million people to 60,000 in 15 years from Spanish and French genocide. With the native population so diminished, the church requested in 1517 for the importation of African slaves. The French and Spanish divided the island, Saint Domingue on the western French side and Santo Domingo on the eastern Spanish side. The colony of San Domingo was the greatest colony of the world, the pride of France and the envy of every other imperialist nation. The whole structure rested on the labor of the half million slaves. C.L.R. James, in his historical account of the San Domingo Revolution, Black Jacobin, rights of the evil treatment of slaves in the colony. The slaves received the whip with more certainty and regularity than they received food. It was the incentive to work and the guardian of discipline, but there was no ingenuity that the fear and deprived imagination could devise, which was not employed to break the slave spirit and satisfy the lust and resentment of their owners and guardians. Irons on their hands and feet, locks of wood, the slaves had to drag behind them where they went, a template mask designed to prevent the slaves eating sugarcane. Whippings was 
interrupted in order to pass a piece of hot wood on the buttocks of victim. Salt, pepper, centron, cinders, aloes, and hot ashes were poured on the bleeding wounds. Mutilations were common, limbs, ears, and sometimes private parts. The masters poured burning wax on their arms and hands, emptying boiling cane sugar over their heads, burned them alive, roasted them on fires, filled them with gunpowder to blow them up. All these tortures and thousands more were created by colonial powers and used as common practice in San Domingo. The slave population was undergoing this violence for over 200 years before the revolution started. The slaves were killed off quickly due to this system, but the sentiment was, quote, slaves could always be bought and profits were always high. The class divide at times ran alongside the racial hierarchy and at others deviates. There were two classes of white people in San Domingo, the big whites and the small whites. The former was comprised of the maritime bourgeoisie, who were the capitalists behind the slave trade, merchants within the city, and the land-owning planters, or plantation owners. The latter, the small whites, were basically everyone else, from lawyers to criminals, but no small white was ever a servant in the colony. The racial divide was supreme over the implied class divide in the minds of the big and small whites, especially since there was a sizable, biracial, relatively wealthy class called the mulattoes. But the small whites having less wealth than the biracial class, sometimes free land-owning class, was still politically and institutionally superior. That was the fundamental belief. So free black slaves or free biracial slaves who were wealthy and land-owning, much more wealthy than the small whites, were still subject to the horrors of the small and big whites of the colony. A white man could trespass on their property, rape their women, and there was no legal recourse. If a white man ate at their house, they couldn't sit with him. Sailor James said, quote, The only privilege the whites allowed them was the privilege of lending white men money. And it's important to note that the trade of the colony was handed over to a private company to form a monopoly over the markets of the colony. Well before 1789, the French bourgeoisie was the most powerful economic class in France, and their immense wealth and power was due to the slave trade and the surplus value they created in the colonies. The French and Haitian Revolution were intrinsically connected since San Domingo was obviously a French colony, but it was the crown jewel of the French colonies. And like the French Revolution, the class and racial tensions were building for hundreds of years. Slave revolts were not uncommon, and there were bands of escaped slaves in the mountains called Maroons, constantly harassing the French. The preceding years leading to 1789, revolutionary fervor was taking hold, and preemptively created alliances and coalitions within the colony. Two months after the storming of the Bastille and the classical start of the French Revolution, a ship sailed into the capital of San Domingo, La Cap, and relayed the monumental news. Plantation owners, most in debt to the maritime bourgeoisie, led the revolt. The beginning of the revolution in San Domingo was started by the big whites against the big whites. They lynched a few that opposed them, but most of the bureaucrats were able to sail to France or America. The governor, still an age on the monarchy, courted the biracial landowning class to join the counter-revolution against the big and small whites. The latter wanted to exterminate the biracial class to seize their land since they did not own land. The Revolutionary National Assembly in France created a colonial assembly in San Domingo, and the debates began over the abolition of slavery 
and equal rights to the biracial class. The National Assembly in France did not want to deal with the topic of rights to the biracial class or slave classes. However, as in all great revolutions, the masses and the poor of France and Paris again rose up and forced the issue. The women of Paris would march on Versailles and drag the king of Paris to sign the Declaration of the Rights of Man in October. And as previously stated, the Declaration of the Rights of Man would state, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. The goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and imperceptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. There were representatives from Saint-Domingue in the National Assembly. Julian Ramond and Vincent Ogue, both of the wealthy biracial class. The night of the signing of the Declaration of the Rights of Man, they were in Parisian bars chanting the famous line and claimed political rights. The bourgeois National Assembly would quickly decide that the colonial question regarding slavery needed to be answered. They determined that the biracial class would continue to not have political rights. The subject of slavery abolition was off the table for the time being. This national debate would incite violence from the white revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries. Lacombe, a biracial free man, and a judicial officer named M. de Bordeaux would request political rights for the biracial class in San Domingo in 1790. Both were lynched, beheaded, and mutilated in the streets of La Cap. Their heads carried on pikes. The biracial class would rise up in several districts as a result. San Domingo had in effect three competing white classes in the revolution, the royalist bureaucracy, the revolutionaries, and the colonial assembly. All three needed but despised the biracial class. Vincent Hugues would secretly leave Paris to start an insurrection in Saint-Domingue. He received funds and arms from the British Empire, a trend that would unfortunately continue throughout the preceding revolution. But the liberal that he was when he came into the capital of Saint-Domingue, Le Cap, he gave proclamations in the city requesting rights and promising not to raise a slave rebellion. They refused him. He would then call up the biracial class against both royalists and revolutionaries, but due to bad weather, his army could not form. He was defeated and tortured for months before his execution. Royalists and patriots were united against the threat of a free and politically equal black class of people. 23 other conspirators met the same fate, including an ex-slave who fought for the independence of America. For the next few months, extreme violence spread across the French Revolution. The masses, the sans culottes, were not happy with the bourgeois government and its protection of property rights over equal political rights. The news of Oge's execution further drove the masses in Paris towards violence. And in Saint-Domingue, violence between patriots and royalists continued. The royalist commander of the military was killed by his own men. They executed him, beheaded him in the middle of the capital. A biracial man, André Rougoud, was imprisoned for the Og uprising. A minor figure at the time, but he would go on to be one of the influential figures of the revolution. News came from the National Assembly that all biracial, land-owning free men, whose parents had to be free as well, had political rights under the rights of man. This only applied to 400 people though. Regardless, the white people of Saint-Domingue united against them and murdered and lynched biracial people indiscriminately. What were the slaves doing and thinking of this chaos around them? They perceived the revolution in France as the white slaves revolting and killing their masters. And around them they saw Frenchmen kill and butcher each other, but still united against the biracial free class. So the slaves were organizing for a revolution. The main communication line was voodoo, an illegal religion in the colony, though this did not stop the slaves from holding meetings in the forest and the mountains at night. 
with the voodoo priests and maroon bands of rebels being the centralizing organizing bodies of this revolution and their leader's name was Dutti Bukman, a giant ex-slave who learned from past failed revolts. He organized the 6,000 slaves in the capital to set fire to the outskirts of the city and then head to the plains to raise the slaves on the plantations. He gave a speech in the middle of a tropical storm overlooking the capital on August 21st, 1791. The God who created the sun, which gives us light, who rouses the waves and rules the storm, though hidden in the clouds, he watches us. He sees all that the white man does. The God of the white man inspires him with crime. For our God calls upon us to do good works. Our God, who is good to us, orders us to avenge our wrongs. He will direct our arms and aid us. Throw away the symbol of the God of the whites, who has so often caused us to weep, and listen to the voice of liberty, which speaks in the hearts of us all. Bukman was the first of the great leaders of the revolution. The slaves revolted in their plantations, killed their masters, and set fire to the fields and buildings in the north. All the violence that was put on them for hundreds of years, and all the violence they saw the white man use to achieve liberty, was on display this night. They would still spare priests and doctors even within the first day or two of this revolution, the most violent day or two of the revolution. But as they gained territory, they started to spare any white people they met. The cruelties of property and privilege are always more ferocious than the revenge of poverty and oppression, writes historian C.L.R. James. The revolution was gaining steam. Freed slaves and the wealthy biracial class began to join them in droves. The white people of Lake Cap could only see fire and smoke on the horizon for weeks. The revolt was isolated partially to the northern province and plains around the capital. After a month of the revolution, a slave named Toussaint Breda, eventually Toussaint Levoture, would finally join the revolution. He was an extremely well-educated man for a slave. Toussaint had read works by Julius Caesar, an Enlightenment-era thinker and abolitionist, Goulam Renal, for example. He joined the slave rebellion led now after the death of Boukman by three men, Georges Biasou, Jean-Francois, and Jeanne Boulet. Jean-Francois would become the de facto leader in the North after arresting Genois, trying him for war crimes, and then executing him. Already the slave rebellion was showing more of a gentleman's war than the European empires. The people of Le Cap would indiscriminately kill biracial and free black people in the streets, place their heads on the pikes along the roads, including the first leader, Boukman. In the western province of Saint-Domingue, André Rougoud would create a coalition of royalist counter-revolutionaries, the free biracial class, and a maroon band of ex-slaves called the Swiss. They would fight back the patriots of the western province around Port-au-Prince and force the counter-revolution to grant them all equal political rights. Rajoud gained control of the western province and now was a key figure for years to come with extreme power. The patriots and royalists were now united with Rugud and pressured him to abandon the ex-slave maroon band, the Swiss, even though they helped Rugud. He protested, but ultimately the ex-slaves were arrested, deported to a deserted beach in Mexico and left to die. It was also an event that signified the divide and conquer mentality of the white people of San Domingo. They were not sincere about the equality for any black man, especially the wealthy biracial class. The biracial class in the western province took the issue of political rights into their own hands, and that created mass hysteria in the north amongst both royalists and patriots. The National Assembly, when hearing about the news of Port-au-Prince, determined to let the colonies decide on rights or abolition, furthering avoiding the issue. In Le Cap, the biracial class demanded rights again and were persecuted. 
Sun decided to leave for the mountains and join the northern rebels, who now numbered over 100,000. In the west, in Port-au-Prince, an attempt of ratification for the rights of the biracial class led to extreme violence. This led to Rigoud, Louis-Jacques Beauvais, and Pierre Penechat to raise the slaves in the biracial class and besiege Port-au-Prince. Rigoud's brother wrote to his friends, I fly to vengeance. If my fate is not death on this expedition, I shall be back soon to join you. Long live liberty, long live equality, and long live love. The reaction in the north again at the news of Rugud's siege of Port-au-Prince was to persecute the biracial class even more. Pregnant women were mutilated and burned alive. Biological warfare via smallpox was used as well. The rebellion in the north, led by Jean-Francois and Biazou, was running out of steam. They controlled the northern mountains and could win an open battle, but the French army decided to stay in their fortifications in Le Cap and other northern coastal cities. The slave army didn't have the guns and munitions to break into the walls. Dealing with a growing army that was starving, they sought peace with the colonial assembly in Le Cap. Jean-Francois Bizou and some other officers, including Toussaint, drafted a letter in effect agreeing to put their army back into slavery for the freedom and immunity for the 400 leaders and officers. In a meeting in Le Cap between the leaders of the rebellion and the assemblymen, the leaders were significantly disrespected, and this was the catalyst for Toussaint seeking total freedom and abolition for the slave class. The assembly in Le Cap refused all concessions with the slave rebellion, and war was to continue. Toussaint was a driving force in the leadership now, becoming resolute in their opposition and a full-out war for freedom. He took on the title of Brigadier General and started to train the slave rebellion into an army. In 1792, Andre Rigoud had formed a large coalition in the West again with white and black men of all classes. He was particularly good at forming these broad coalitions, as he was in reality truly a believer in social revolution. One of his captains named Hyacinth was a 21-year-old slave who claimed to be divinely inspired. He would go around to plantations and the slaves would flock to him for Rigoud's coalition. Armed mostly with knives and pitchforks, they would charge wave after wave into the cannons and muskets of the Patriot French army. They believed when they died they would wake up in Africa. And as CLR James wrote of this coalition and revolutionary army, in April 1792, not yet three years after the fall of Bastille, the white patriots off Port-au-Prince were being besieged by a composite army of royalist commandants, white planters, the biracial class, and black slaves. None of them constrained, but all of them at the time being free and equal partners. No doubt most of the rich were only awaiting the restoration of the order to put slaves back in their places again. But the mere fact of the Revolutionary Association and the temporary equality meant that the old spell was broken and things would never be the same again. As violence in the colonies raged, the National Assembly debated the issue of the rights for the biracial class. The issue of abolition of slavery was still not the primary focus. And the reason why was because the Revolutionary French Assembly was still deeply bourgeoisie. Property was one of their fundamental rights, spelled out in the rights of man. And guess who were property? The slaves. It was a natural contradiction of this revolutionary French order that was created. Even the radical Maximilien Robespierre only disagreed with the word slavery, as he preferred the term non-freed. In July 1792, Toussaint had gained a following of 500 loyal soldiers out of the thousands following other leaders. They were trained and drilled by him in the mountains, considered the best soldiers in the rebellion. 
but he was alone amongst the leaders of the time in regards to abolition. The biracial class, the white classes of San Domingo, and the National Assembly still viewed the slave rebellion which controlled a third of the colony as a riot that needed to be put down. But as the National Assembly was plunging into war with all of Europe, it seemed the masses revolted yet again and set the revolution of France towards a more radical focus. The storming of the Tuileries Palace, the capture of the royal family, and the dissolving of the National Assembly for the National Convention had a massive impact on Saint-Domingue. As normal and truly radical groups, the longer the struggle, the more revolutionary they become. C.L.R. James wrote, The Paris masses were striking at royalty, tyranny, reaction, and oppression of all types, and with these included slavery. They were for abolition, and their black brothers in San Domingo, for the first time, had passionate allies in France. The National Convention would be elected and would deliberate under the influence of these masses. The slaves in San Domingo, by their insurrection, had shown revolutionary France that they could fight and die for freedom. The people of San Domingo had no news of this August event in Paris when new commissioners came ashore from France to give all the free class, ex-slave or biracial, political rights. The commissioners were led by Leger Felicite Santanex, who was a Jacobin but seen as a representative of the defunct, now, constitutional monarchy in the National Assembly. The royalists and patriots of San Domingo united under Santanex because of the compromise of biracial rights with the continuation of slavery. The president of the colonial assembly in Saint Domingue stated to Santanex, We have not brought half a million slaves from the coast of Africa to make them into French citizens. Santanex would reply, quote, I recognize there can be only two classes of man in Saint Domingo the free, without distinction of color, and the slaves. There were plans from the United Patriot Royalist Coalition to finally put down the slave rebellion in the mountains, but those plans were never acted on. The news of the Tulia Palace and the new National Convention came in October and split the coalition in San Domingo, with Santanax leading the Patriots now in the north successfully. The Patriot Army commander, Etienne Levois, who was defeating the armies of Toussaint and Jean-Francois, but was recalled due to the unrest. In the beginning months of 1793, the king was beheaded in Paris, and the forces of Britain and Spain declared outright war with France. Both had been covertly engaged in funding counter-revolutions and royalist forces from 1789, but now it was official. The armies of the empires of Spain and Britain were now heading towards San Domingo, inadvertently giving life to the abolition of slavery in the colony and the revolution led by Toussaint. The slave rebellion now allied itself with the neighboring Spanish Santo Domingo. Jean-Francois and Biazou were named lieutenant general of the armies of the king of Spain. Toussaint made his own terms with the Spanish to be more autonomous. He was named a colonel and now had 600 loyal and well-trained soldiers under him. He fought for the royalty of Spain and France officially, but this was mere politics to him. He suggested to the Spanish leadership in Santo Domingo that they free all the slaves and give them political rights so they could easily win the war in the colony. The Spanish refused. So in response, Toussaint sent a letter to the Patriot Commander Lavoie offering to join the French against the Spanish and British if they freed the slaves. They also refused. This was all within four months of Toussaint joining the Spanish, showing that this was all a ploy to get equality for his people. Even though he was ally of Spanish royalty, who refused to free the slaves, he was still proclaiming liberty for all where he went. On August 29th, 1793, he issued the call, Brothers and friends, I am Toussaint Levoture. My name is perhaps known to you. I have undertaken vengeance. 
I want liberty and equality to reign in San Domingo. I work to bring them into existence. Unite yourselves to us, brothers, and fight with us for the same cause. In the capital, Sontanax was ruling harshly against the royalists. He was deporting anyone suspected of counter-revolution and was giving the government over to the biracial class. However, when a new governor named Gabard was appointed, he rallied the royalists in the city and kicked out Sontanax. In response, Sontanax armed the slaves and prisoners, sending 10,000 now armed and now ex-slaves rushing from the mountains into the capital, killing many people, and the rest rushed to the ships to sail to the United States. Sailor James wrote, It was the end of white domination in San Domingo. The current legend that the abolition of slavery resulted in the destruction of the whites is a shameless lie. In 1792, the whites were all tumbling over each other to give rights to the biracial class, but it was too late. If it was a year before, all could have been averted. Why didn't they give rights to the biracial class? Race prejudice? Nonsense. Why did Charles I and his followers not behave reasonably to Cromwell? Why did Louis and Marie Antoinette not behave reasonably to moderate revolutionaries? Why indeed? The monarchy of France had to be torn up by the roots. Those in power never give way. Had the monarchists been white, the bourgeois brown, and the masses of France black, the French Revolution would have gone down in history as a race war. But they were white in France. The struggle of classes ends either in the reconstruction of society or in the common ruin of contending classes. Sultan X was now dealing with his own ex-slave army from within, demanding liberty in the streets of Le Cap, while Jean-Francois was pressing towards the capital calling for the freedom of slaves. From this pressure on August 29th, 1793, Sontanax abolished slavery in Saint Domingo. In the southern province, slave armies were having much success against the white and biracial coalition there. But in the western province, under Ragud, the coalition reigned supreme. There, they offered some of the bravest slaves freedom if they could get the rest back into slavery. Over 100,000 were led back to the plantations because of this. Property, white or biracial, had come together under the flag of counter-revolution. This is an inevitable fate of class hierarchy. Sontanax and Lavoie tried desperately to get Toussaint and Jean-Francois on their side, but they refused at this point. And through 1794, Toussaint was gaining power, now having a direct force of 4,000 men of all classes and race. He had successfully taken towns and entire detachments of the enemy without firing a shot. His personal officer corps consisted of Jean-Jacques de Salinet, an ex-slave that received extremely harsh treatment, but was a natural soldier, Henry Christophe, a former slave who fought in the American Revolution, and Hyacinth Moyes, Toussaint's adoptive nephew. As the Spanish and British were invading Saint-Domingue with the help of Jean-Francois and Biazou, the restoration of slavery seemed to be something of inevitability. The two former slaves, now Spanish generals, were calling for Toussaint's head as he was still declaring the freedom of slaves wherever he went. But with the official abolition of slavery still not confirmed by the National Convention, Toussaint was seemingly stuck between his own side and an ineffective French resistance. Like always, the masses in France, the real communists of the age, went after the dominant conservative Girardins and put in Robespierre and the radical Jacobin wing. The masses instituted a revolutionary tribunals that stripped away the last parts of feudalism. Three delegates from San Domingo arrived in the middle of this political upheaval and spoke to the National Convention. John Baptiste Bellet, a former slave, 
John Baptiste Mills, a biracial free man, and Louis Pierre Dufay, a white landowner. The former two were specifically embraced as brothers of France by the convention, and the topic of abolition was decided. They gave speeches in the convention motion that no discussions will happen regarding the issue, as the mere discussion of abolition instead of the action was deemed too disrespectful to the new brothers of France. So on February 3rd, 1794, slavery was officially abolished in all parts of the French Republic. Robespierre was not present for this session, and he did not approve, but the die was cast. History was made, and in May, when Toussaint heard of the news, immediately switched sides to France to continue his mission of liberty for his people. At this point, Toussaint was in control of roughly 5,000, 6,000 highly trained soldiers, and in a single move, allied with Sontenac and Lavoie and Le Cap, who promoted him to brigadier general, and then he routed the armies of Spain, including Jean-Francois and Biazou. He reconquered for France all the territory he won for Spain from the northern province down into the west. André Rougoud was now fighting the British invasion from Jamaica in the southern province. Midway through 1794, the complete power structure of San Domingo changed and lay in the hands of Toussaint Levoteur and André Rougoud. It's important to contextualize how important this transition of power in San Domingo was. As C.L.R. James wrote, If the British could hold San Domingo, the finest colony in the world, they would once more be in power in American waters. Instead of being abolitionists, they would be the most powerful practitioners and advocates of the slave trade, on a scale excelling anything they had ever done before. But there was another urgent issue. If the British completed the conquest of San Domingo, the colonial empire of revolutionary France was gone. Its vast resources would be directed into British pockets, and Britain would be able to return to Europe and throw army and navy against the revolution. The fight for San Domingo was a fight for supreme global control, and fundamentally was the epicenter of all revolutionary war at the time. Over the next few years, Sontenac would get recalled due to unfound suspicion of working with the counter-revolution. Lavoie would become governor of Saint-Domingue in his absence and build a strong alliance and friendship with Toussaint, who also would become the central figure of the war. They defeated the Spanish and Jean-Francois forces after the Spanish coalition committed war atrocities and mass murder against white and black people of Saint-Domingue killing thousands of innocent people, men, women, and children. Lavoie and Toussaint would become close friends during this time, considered the only friend of Toussaint throughout the war, and Toussaint's charisma and reputation were unmatched. When André Rougoud was dealing with a maroon band of 5,000 ex-slaves, he wrote to Toussaint asking for help. A single letter from Toussaint made the 5,000 ex-slaves join his side. The alliance of Toussaint and Lavoie in the north was in loose coalition with André Rougoud, in the West and the South, due to their common enemy in the British. But foreshadowing future events, Toussaint would have continuous issues and run-ins with the wealthy biracial class. Many of them, from the old regime of the French monarchy, still viewed ex-slaves as a class beneath them which they can govern. Classes viewing themselves as superior was still an issue in the bourgeois French Republic. In France, Robespierre would attack the communist left, persecute the working men, and sans-culottes, far more than aristocracy in this phase of the terror, and like many moderate revolutionaries, destroy his own radical base which he relied on for early wins. The masses did not rise up to defend Robespierre from the reactionary forces, 
and thus doomed themselves to an even worse fate. The bourgeois aristocracy gained control of the new directory, where at least Sultanax was able to continue to push pro-black policies and discussions. In San Domingo, Toussaint was consulting power but continuously made concessions to the white planter class. He was seeking harmony and prosperity in San Domingo, and he saw himself as a faithful servant of France, always. Even when he was fighting with the Spanish, he viewed himself as fighting for the Catholic Christian French monarchy. In this way, Toussaint too would be a moderate like Robespierre. Independence in Toussaint's mind was always through political equality and liberty within the French government. Toussaint, though, was an autocrat by nature. He wanted to do things his way. He pressured his best friend Lavoie to go back to France as a representative of the colony in 1796. Sultanax would return to replace him as governor of Saint-Domingue. Sultanax's main goal in this year of being governor was the attempted pacification of the biracial controlled territory in the western southern province, centered around Port-au-Prince and under André Rougoud's authority. Toussaint was named commander-in-chief of the colonial French forces in Saint-Domingo. Sultanax, though, would go against Toussaint's vice, not use the mutual respect André Rougoud and Toussaint had to his advantage, but send commissioners that were explicit rivals of André Rougoud. One of those commissioners would rape André Rougoud's fiancée. Rougoud would attack him before his servants pulled him away, and they threatened to arrest his co-leader, Pierre Penachon. This led to André Rougoud and his forces attacking the forces beyond the commissioners in less chaos. This split between the biracial class and the French government led to Toussaint to conspire against Sultanax and take further control of the colony. He wrote to the commission that Sultanax was planning a massacre of all the white people of San Domingo and to make San Domingo independent. The commission was apprehensive about this information, but a meeting between Sultanax and Toussaint led to Sultanax voluntarily recalling himself to France. Sultanax was extremely popular with both white and black people of San Domingo at this point, but Toussaint's words held too much power. The directory, now purged of all radicals, turned towards the restoration of slavery, and Toussaint now had a direct alliance with André Rougoud to buffer this growing threat from France. The directory believed Toussaint had designs for independence after the forced deportation of Sultanax. In November, Toussaint would write to the directory, I swear it by all that liberty holds most sacred, my attachment to France, my knowledge of my people, Make it my duty not to leave you ignorant either of the crimes which they mediate or the oath that we renew. To bury ourselves on the ruins of a country revived by liberty rather than suffer the return of slavery. It is for you, citizens, directors, to turn from over our heads the storm which the eternal enemies of our liberty are preparing in the shades of silence. It is for you to enlighten the legislature. It is for you to prevent the enemies of the present system from spreading themselves on our unfortunate shores to sully it with new crimes. Do not allow our brothers, our friends, to be sacrificed to men who wish to reign over the ruins of the human species. But no, your wisdom will enable you to avoid the dangerous snares which our common enemies hold out for you. I send you with this letter a declaration which will acquaint you with the unity that exists between the proprietors of San Domingo who are in France those in the United States, and those who serve under the English banner. You will see there a resolution, unequivocal and quite carefully constructed for the restoration of slavery. You will see their determination to succeed has led them to envelop themselves in the mantle of liberty in order to strike it more deadly blows. Do you think that men who have been able to enjoy the blessings of liberty will calmly see it snatched away? They supported their chains only 
so long as they did not know any condition of life more happy than that of slavery. But today, when they have left it, if they had a thousand lives, they would sacrifice them all and be forced into slavery again. But no, the same hand which has broken our chains will not enslave us anew. France will not revoke her principles. She will not withdraw from us the greatest of her benefits. She will protect us against all our enemies. She will not permit her sublime morality to be perverted. Those principles which do her most honor to be destroyed, her most beautiful achievement to be degraded. But if, to reestablish slavery in San Domingo, this was done, then I declare to you it would be to attempt the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. This, citizens' directors, is the morale of the people of San Domingo. Those are the principles that they transmit to you by me. My own, you know, it is sufficient to renew my hand in yours, the oath that I have made, to cease to live before gratitude dies in my heart, before I cease to be faithful to France and to my duty, before the God of liberty is profane and sullied by the liberty sides, before they can snatch from my hand that sword, those arms which France confided to me for the defense of its rights and those of humanity, for the triumph of liberty and equality. This was a man past 50 years old, six years removed from slavery, with little formal education, in charge of wars with empires and governance of the greatest colony on the planet. And he was as remarkable as any of the great men of that age, an age filled with especially great men. By the end of 1796, the British had 80,000 casualties in the West Indies. Over the next couple of years, Toussaint and André Rougoud, an alliance would work to expel the British from San Domingo. Through an impressive campaign in the West and South, having to retake Port-au-Prince and many cities from the British, British General Thomas Maitland realized that his position was hopeless and sought peace with Toussaint and a total evacuation of British forces from San Domingo. However, in one last meeting between the two, Maitland offered to help Toussaint to be king of San Domingo and create an independent state with the, quote, protection of the British military and the exclusive trade rights with the resource-rich island. Toussaint would refuse. So by late August 1798, the British evacuated to Jamaica or Britain. Toussaint was now in a place of supreme reputation amongst the people in San Domingo. He was seen as the liberator, the peacemaker, as he had a strict policy of racial harmony. He was judicious against his men if they were to perform any acts of cruelty against white or black people. However, the current governor of San Domingue, Gabriel Hedelville, disapproved of Toussaint's policy of reconciliation with the white planter class, a class that sided with the British because of the promise of the restoration of slavery. Toussaint, through a period of public disagreement with Hedelville, would write his resignation letter and even send it to the directory stating, An honorable and peaceable retreat into the bosom of my family is my sole ambition. There, as at the head of my armies, I shall always be ready to show a good example and give the best advice. But I have learnt too much of the heart of man, not to be certain that it is only in the bosom of my family that I shall find happiness. Toussaint would have happily faded away into history, but history wasn't done with him. The new governor didn't pay the army, 
which was now largely ex-slaves. He replaced black generals with white ones and instituted a poor policy of apprenticeship for ex-slaves in the plantations. And this wasn't Sontanax or Lavoie anymore. Gabriel Hedoville was seen as an agent of the malevolent directory and attempting to restore slavery. An incident where he tried to remove Moyes from his command was the catalyst for Toussaint and André Rougoud to openly go to war with the directory in France. Moyes was the second most popular man in the army of San Domingo and like many great revolutionaries was deeply connected to the masses. He raised the laborers in the plains of the north while Desalines took the army and marched on Le Cap on Toussaint's orders. The governor and many of the bourgeoisie who detested Toussaint and his forces left for France before Desalines could capture them. Toussaint, upon hearing the news, gave a proclamation at Fort Liberté. Who reverts to the sword were perished by the sword. Hideville said that I am against liberty, that I want to surrender to the English, that I wish to make myself independent. Who ought to love liberty more? Toussaint Levocha, slave of Breda, or General Hiddleville, former Marquis de Saint Louis. If I wished to surrender to the English, would I have chased them away? Remember that there is only one Toussaint Levocher in San Domingo, and that at his name, everybody must tremble. Hiddleville has spread it that he is going to France to seek forces to come back. I do not want to fight with France. I have saved this country for her up to this present. But if she comes to attack me, I shall defend myself. General Hiddleville does not know that in Jamaica there are in the mountains black rebels who have forced the English to sign treaties with them. Well, I am black like them. I know how to make war. And besides, I have advantages that they didn't have, for I can count on assistance and protection. Finally, I have done what I ought to do. I have nothing to reproach myself with. I laugh at whatever Hedoville says, and he can come when he wants. General Hedoville would get to Paris and detail to the directory the need to split Toussaint and André Rougoud to keep the quote export of sugar and coffee out of English and American hands. Before he even left Saint-Domingue, he had already written to André Rougoud giving him an authority on par with Toussaint. This was always a war of trade rights and of class divisions. Toussaint at this point wanted complete control of the colony of San Domingo, but still in a subservient relationship with France. And he believed if a French expedition would come, André Rougoud's forces in the south and west would join the expedition against him. Rougoud though, to his credit, tried to avoid this issue. He wrote his resignation letter to Toussaint and the replacement of Houdeville named Philippe Rome was in Santo Domingo at the time. Rome refused the resignation of André Rougoud and enforced the confrontation hoping André Rougoud would win. Toussaint first had to deal with the economy of San Domingo, which was nearly collapsed due to 10 years of war. Toussaint would make a trade deal with the British and Spanish. The former was still at war with France. The loophole was British ships had to raise the Spanish or American flag and they sailed into the harbor. Even though Toussaint did this independently from Philippe, Rome, and the Directory, Rome would let her say it was justified to save the crumbling economy. However, in the deal, Toussaint explicitly left out the southern ports under André Rougeud. This trade war centered on San Domingo was between empires, but also two men vying for control and authority on this rich island. Toussaint would attempt to get Rougeud's second command, Bivet, on his side, but Bivet decided to sail to France and avoid the coming bloodshed between two revolutionaries he admired. André Rougoud would be the first to turn this Cold War of subversion into open conflict. 
However, he would continually look to France for help when there wasn't any. Montessant pressed forward independent from France's authority. Dessalines would march south to fight André Rougoud directly. Montessant would head north and pacify the wealthy, free, biracial, and black classes in the north. Over the next year, from the summer of 1799 to the summer of 1800, Dessalines systematically took over the west and south of Saint-Domingue, leading André Rougoud to escape from the colony. Toussaint was now in supreme control of Saint-Domingo, and in France, Napoleon Bonaparte was victorious in the internal wars of the bourgeoisie, but for the time being, was too preoccupied in Europe, so made Toussaint commander-in-chief and governor of San Domingo. In the next month, Toussaint would invade the Spanish side of San Domingo, Santo Domingo, to free the slaves and gain control of the entire island of San Domingo, a colony the size of Ireland. He and Moyes marched into Le Cap to force Commissioner Rome to sign the decree allowing them to do so. This set Toussaint on the warpath of Napoleon. As previously mentioned, Toussaint wanted autonomy from the government of France, but still be under its protection. He deeply saw himself as a servant of France, but he was a servant of his people first, and did not trust the representatives sent by France. However, the fatal flaw of Toussaint was his non-communication of this plan, or any plan. He never explained his desires or plans for San Domingo with Christophe de Salinay, or even his nephew who he loved dearly, Moise. His silence on such matters confused the people, but it wouldn't confuse Napoleon. This was an issue de Salinay didn't have. After the war with André Rougoud, he told his soldiers directly, the war you just won is a little war, but you have two more bigger ones. One is against the Spaniards, who do not want to give up their land, who have insulted your brave commander-in-chief, and the other is against France, who will try to make you slaves again as soon as she is finished with her enemies. We'll win those wars. After 12 years of war, San Domingo was devastated. A little over a third of the population either died or left. The infrastructure of agriculture was destroyed far and wide. Toussaint, as the leader of San Domingo, saw agriculture as the path to prosperity for the people and saw massive building projects to rejuvenate the fields and roads. He gave more economic power and regulations for the laborer class. One-fourth of the revenue was given to the laborers, half of the revenue for the treasury, and one-fourth of the revenue given to the owner. He set the limits of the working day to a 12-hour day instead of the original 16- or 18-hour days the slaves were under. In just a year and a half, after more than a decade of war and destruction, he restored cultivation to two-thirds of the height of the old regime of the monarchy while protecting, quote, personal industry, social morality, public education, religious toleration, free trade, civic pride, and racial inequality. Toussaint was without a doubt a military dictator of this time, but his regime was rooted in the interests of the laboring poor, unlike that of the dictatorship of Napoleon in France. Le Cap was built into the best city of the West Indies, a cultural hub of America, Spain, England, and France, with the leadership and creativity of the free black population. He was sending the black and biracial children to France to receive proper education, to return and govern as truly educated leaders. Toussaint was still aware of the radicals like Santanax and Lavoie, Friends of the black people were gone from Paris and France, stamped out by the bourgeois counter-revolution. He was just trying to create time. Toussaint was aware as well of the disdain the planter class had towards the laborers still. He had strict laws against using the whip and even would punish de Salinay for using it against his own laborers. He redrew the districts of San Domingo and made a commission for the creation of a constitution. It abolished slavery forever in San Domingo, made the church subordinate to the state, created a unicameral body called the Central Assembly, which would accept or reject laws, 
It appointed Toussaint governor for life with the ability to choose a successor, and most importantly, while still swearing allegiance to France, created no positions that could be filled by France. Toussaint would appoint the Central Assembly, and the municipal positions were left to those in Saint-Domingo, most of them already filled by his followers. Toussaint, in effect, declared Saint-Domingo independent with France as, quote, elder brother, guide, and mentor. Also in the Constitution, he did legalize slave trade for an ingenious reason. All the slaves that came to San Domingo would immediately be freed and given resources to live, land, wealth. He also made plans to take this ex-slave army to Africa itself to put an end to the slave trade and make them free in French. He sent it to France but immediately published it in July 1801 without the vast majority of his followers even knowing he had created the constitution. And the reaction of his loyal close circle was acrimonious at best. Even his nephew Moyes called Toussaint a old fool. He thinks he is king of San Domingo. Toussaint's lack of communication, even with those closest to him, was a fatal flaw. But most importantly, he never truly changed the power dynamics of the classes of San Domingo. Yes, the black population were no longer slaves, but they were still under the same white masters that now are just white employers. The classes just changed names. There was not a dynamic or revolutionary shift here. It was a moderate resolution to a radical issue. And like the moderate Robespierre, Toussaint would destroy his revolutionary vanguard. In the northern province, upset over the lack of fundamental class change, Moyes raised a revolt against his adoptive uncle. He stated, quote, Whatever my old uncle may do, I cannot bring myself to be an executioner of my own color. It is always in the interest of the metropolis that he scolds me. But these interests are those of the whites. I shall only love them when they give me back the eye that they made me lose in battle. Moyes fighting Toussaint, Dessalines, and Christophe, was captured and executed. Moyes understood Toussaint was placating to the bourgeois class of San Domingo for the reason of stability, but Moyes was only interested in the true political and economic emancipation of his class. As soon as the masses saw that Toussaint no longer served that goal, they sought someone else who could lead them there. A tragic reoccurring dynamic of revolutionary coalitions. Napoleon, a deeply racist man, who would never directly write to Toussaint and persecute the biracial general of the revolution, Thomas Alexandre Dumas, now set his sight on San Domingo and the restoration of slavery. He sent one of his best generals, Charles Leclerc, with 20,000 well-experienced men from the Egyptian campaign. The expedition left for San Domingo the day after Moyes' execution. The French expedition would arrive in San Domingo after Toussaint had broken the will of the black laborers while reassuring the white planters. Toussaint never explained to his supporters why their old enemies were given positions or favor. Vladimir Lenin would learn from this and keep his supporters thoroughly aware of why certain czarist officials were still in positions of authority in early Soviet Union. Also, Toussaint fundamentally still saw himself as French. This would be like Lenin fundamentally viewing himself as a czarist. The right course of action would have been to declare the obvious intent of this French expedition, which was the restoration of slavery, raise the laborers in the fields, declare independence, and give an ultimatum to all people of San Domingo. Stay, fight, or leave. He did the worst thing a revolutionary can do. He waited and left his supporters divided after Moise's execution. Sailor James wrote, It was a method, not principle, that Toussaint failed. The race question is subsidiary to the class question in politics, and to think of imperialism in terms of race is disastrous. But to neglect the racial factor as merely incidental is an error only less grave than to make it fundamental. When the French ships came over the horizon, Toussaint saw them approach from a nearby mountain and told his officers, quote, We shall perish 
all of France has come to overwhelm us. Napoleon had planned the whole campaign. The expedition was first to promise loyalty to Dussant, to get key access of San Domingo. Next was to divide and compel Toussaint's officers who were, quote, favorable to the whites to join their side. Then they would, in a single day, launch a coup and arrest all of Toussaint and his major supporters. If that was done, then they would systematically strip any black officer down in rank. All white women who had married black men during this period were to be deported to France for forced prostitution. Napoleon also had Andre Rougoud and the other biracial leaders who were deported or left go on this expedition as they requested. But if Toussaint allowed the expedition to land, they would all immediately be deported to Madagascar. Napoleon only wanted them if they needed to divide the population in San Domingo. Napoleon was still attempting to appear as the heir of revolution in France, so only Leclerc knew of the order to restore slavery. The soldiers in the expedition were led to believe Toussaint was a royalist fighting for the British and the church. Leclerc and 5,000 of his men sailed into the harbor of Le Cap, demanding lodging in the city from Toussaint's officer, Henri Christophe. Toussaint gave him strict orders to rebuke the demands of Leclerc. However, when news came that neighboring Fort Liberté was taken by another French force, war was declared. It was an initial confusion from the forces of Toussaint due to the lack of communication between him and his officers that led to some major defeats in the war. Toussaint, though, would enforce a scorched earth policy, destroy and take anything the French could use. All of the infrastructure Toussaint had built over the last year and a half were destroyed by their own hand, so the French couldn't use it. He wrote to Desalinier in the South, Do not forget, while waiting for the rainy season, which will rid us of our foes, that we have no other resource than destruction and fire. Bear in mind that the soil bathed with our sweat must not furnish our enemies with the smallest sustenance. Tear up the roads with shot. Throw corpses and horses into all the fountains. Burn and annihilate everything in order that those who have come to reduce us to slavery may have before their eyes the image of that hell which they deserve. As C.L.R. James wrote, quote, It was too late. Events were to show that if he had but mobilized the masses before, purged his army, the French attack would have been crippled at the start. His desire to avoid destruction was the very thing that caused it. It is the recurring error of moderates when face to face with the revolutionary struggle. The letter to Desalinier would never reach him, but he didn't need the order. He was already on a path to separate himself from Toussaint's leadership. Desalinier blamed Toussaint for the defeats and losses of key cities and forts. He declared the island independent from France and started the massacre of former white slave owners who were joyful at the prospect of the restoration of slavery. Leclerc was determined to subdue Toussaint. The French commander Napoleon believed that if Toussaint and Desalinier could be subdued, the whole rebellion would be over. He brought Toussaint's two sons from Paris to encourage him to surrender. Toussaint, being moved by their affection for France, an affection he still shared, let them decide what side they would align with. His son Isaac declared for France, but Toussaint's wife and Isaac's mother, Madame Louverture, forbade him from going back to Leclerc. Toussaint had some key victories in the South, and Toussaint couldn't be pacified. Leclerc, after several key defeats, would write to Napoleon in perhaps the letter that best epitomized European imperialism and the bigotry behind it. Three months before our arrival, Moyes had sought to supplant Toussaint and to do this. He had begun the massacre of 600 to 700 whites. Toussaint had him shot and had rid us of him. Toussaint has sent to make me proposals for the suspension of hostilities. I believe not a word of it. He is the most false and deceitful man in the world. I have already more than 1,200 men in the hospital. Calculate on the considerable waste of life in this country. I have no resources for commerce. The traders at Le Cap are only the agents of the Americans, and the Americans are all Jews, the most Jewish. 
the insanity and evilness and anti-Semitism of imperialism are laid bare in that letter from Leclerc to Napoleon. Toussaint was fighting an uphill battle for control of San Domingo. Half of his 18,000 soldiers were fighting with the French. He had to stick to guerrilla warfare in the mountains like the first years of the revolution. Over the year though, the grueling warfare in the mountains and yellow fever devastated the French army. However, in one of those moments in history that will always be subjected to debate, April 25th, 1802, Henry Christophe would defect to the French, having grown wary of the harsh war and secretive nature of Toussaint. Toussaint was mentally defeated at this point, losing one of his best generals and a sizable portion of his army. When the clerk offered peace, his own plantation still, the freedom of the black people, and peaceful integration of his army with the French, Toussaint surrendered as well. He had a meeting with his remaining generals, including de Salinay, and convinced them to surrender as well. They would march into Le Cap to a hero's welcome from the masses. Leclerc and his officers took note especially of how they reacted so enthusiastically to de Salinay and his proud army. This is when de Salinay would plan to take control of San Domingo. The man who formerly worshipped Toussaint now told Leclerc that Toussaint needed to be removed for the stability and safety of the colony. The French general knew the revolution had passed Toussaint by, but he believed he had de Salinay pacified and in control. So he agreed and arrested Toussaint and his family in May 1802. Toussaint and his family were deported to France, and Toussaint Leverture was imprisoned in Fort de Joux in the mountains. He would never face a trial as Napoleon Bonaparte was still quite fearful of the impact a public trial could have not only in San Domingo, but in France. Dessant was a hero to the revolutionaries of the masses. The same masses that just a decade prior bled in the streets of Paris to force the Jacobins to abolish slavery. Napoleon would never respond to any of the many, many letters Dessant sent him over the next year and refused to let him stand trial. Dessant would die to basic neglect. They stopped giving him rations for food, clothing, firewood and as an old man with sickness before he was deported he died april 7th 1803 his last words before leaving san domingo were quote in overthrowing me you have cut down in san domingo only the trunk of the tree of liberty it will spring up again by the roots for they are numerous and deep news of toussaint's arrest and imprisonment and eventual death would galvanize the masses of San Domingo. Insurrection sprang from the laborers across the provinces. De Salinay and Christophe still waited to turn on the French. They were instructed to hunt down the brigands, and usually, they kept in contact with them, actually. De Salinay, Christophe, and others would finally turn on the French army after news of the vote for the restoration of slavery and the explicit call for a war of extermination against the black and biracial class in San Domingo. The plan by Napoleon was just to replace them with new slaves from Africa that never experienced liberty. The insurrection now was a full war for independence and survival against the genocidal Napoleonic forces. The mass executions the French carried out were horrific, creating even new ways of death and torture. They would gas entire holds of ship filled with prisoners and ex-slaves until they were killed. Arguably, this first gas chamber for genocide was created against the revolutionary Haitian forces. Written accounts of the time talk about the waters of the Cap being so filled with the bodies of black laborers that they couldn't eat the fish in the harbor. The colonists were demanding that if they didn't have slavery, France couldn't have a colony. The generals, de Salinay, Henri Christophe, Alexandre Petition, Charles Belair, Augustin Clairvois, and Jacques Marapas were all seemingly waiting, playing the political game to see who would come out on top. Salinay, Petitjean, 
formed an alliance of black and biracial forces. Charles Belair, though, was the first to side with the revolution, but was quickly captured and executed along with his wife, as the women were very much involved in the war at this point. It's another revolutionary that was captured, tried, and executed by other revolutionaries. It was a blow to the masses, but not to the degree of Moise. The biracial commander, Petition, was the first to break away from the French, successfully. The rest, including de Salinay, would follow. In response, Le Kirk had thousands of black people drowned in the harbor of Le Cap. Le Kirk, though, would die soon after from disease, knowing full well he failed. The new leader of the French forces in Saint Domingo, Dantien de Rochambeau, was especially hateful of the black masses and increased the mass executions. J.L.R. James wrote, De Salinay was a one-sided genius, but he was a man for the crisis, not Toussaint. He gave blow for blow, but neither de Salinay's army nor his ferocity won the victory. It was the people. They burned San Domingo flat so that at the end of the war, it was a charred desert. Why would you burn everything? Asked a French officer to a prisoner. We have a right to burn what we cultivate because a man has a right to dispose of his own labor, was the reply of the unknown anarchist. End quote. The British declared war on France again, which helped the revolutionaries in San Domingo. De Sané formed a conference that wrote the Haitian Declaration of Independence and created the new Haitian flag. Slowly, they drove out the French through vicious fighting and battles until November 1803, the French army would leave Le Cap. This ragtag army of ex-slaves had defeated the Napoleonic army. What happened next in classical history textbooks is that de Sané formed a dictatorship, killed all the white people in Haiti, and enslaved the people again. In reality, de Sané was a pawn of neocolonialism. His coronation ceremony as Emperor of Haiti in 1804 was paid for by English and American capitalists. De Salinay may have been hateful enough of white people to want to kill all French people on the island. We have plenty of examples of his violence. But generals like Christophe, Petitjean, and Clairvaux did not show that same violent tendency. We do know in December at the Haitian Congressional Meeting, which was drafting the Constitution, three British agents were present. The British agents, especially Hugh Cathcart, promised British protection for the exclusive trade rights with Haiti, but, quote, only when the last of the whites had fallen under the axe, end quote, meaning only the French white people. The massacre ordered by Dessalinay that saw all French white people, not British or American, killed in Haiti was ordered directly by the British to monopolize the resources of this new country. It was the beginnings of of the neocolonialism that we see to this day. The future of Haiti was directly undermined by the civilized countries and states. Those who preached enlightenment sowed acts of genocide purely for monetary gain. The prosperity of the people of San Domingo was taken from them. It is impossible to talk about the massacre of the French without contextualizing it with the quote, war of extermination the French had on the black people of San Domingo and the forced isolation by the very countries who pushed them towards equal violence. It was sometime later in the League of Nations when Haiti was denounced and condemned by England for these violent acts, even though those violent acts were ordered directly by English capitalists. De Salinay would be emperor for two years until his assassination in 1806. He would outlaw the whip and forms of labor torture, but a system of serfdom for the laborers was compared to slavery. He would free thousands of slaves from ships sailing to the West Indies and largely copy Toussaint's economic distribution system. An extremely harsh authoritarian, but the economy of Haiti did improve in those two years. 
Alexandre Petition and Henry Christophe conspired against Dessalines and assassinated him, leading to a civil war between the two and a temporary split of Haiti into two countries. The long 18th century was over. The Age of Enlightenment had ended, and the rise of capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism was complete. From the English Revolution through the Haitian Revolution, we can see the initial reaction to the growth of global oppressive systems such as capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, and slavery. Unfortunately, these revolutions were largely led by moderates like Robespierre and even Toussaint, who did not share the radicalism of the masses, the proletariats. However, the last two socialist epochs, those of the ancients and that of the Enlightenment, gave the foundation needed for people like Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and Mikhail Bakunin, who would define not just the next socialist epoch, but the entire modern left movement.